the homeschool enthusiast. This is the podcast inspiring a generation of parents and students to escape public school prisons, develop a passion for lifelong learning, and promote family as the center of an education. At the homeschool enthusiast, we believe the best learning happens outside a classroom and that every student has unlimited God-given potential. And here's your host, entrepreneur and proud homeschool graduate, Noah Tetzner. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Homeschool Enthusiast. I couldn't be more thrilled about today's guest. He's a venture capital professional writer and Ivy League dropout. He wrote the foreword to that classic book, Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling by John Taylor Gatto. Today, my guest is Zach Slayback. Zach, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Noah. I was telling you earlier, Zach, that uh, they say it's like bad karma to talk to your heroes in life. Um, but we're going to we're going to try to test that theory today by having you on the podcast. Um, oh, I'm, I'm very flattered. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think people need better heroes if I've ever fallen in that category. But thanks. <laughs> well, well, thanks, Zach. I, I appreciate it. You know, um, I am such an advocate of homeschooling. I'm a homeschool graduate myself. And, um, you know, we can talk at length about the benefits of homeschooling, the benefits of an alternative, non-traditional education. Um, but one of the reasons why I personally am most passionate about homeschooling um, and, and certainly liberating, and I do use that word, uh, children from the, the the prison that is public schools and public educations is because uh, it really affords them so many opportunities that relate to their careers in particular, which of course can make or break a person. Uh, if it wasn't for homeschooling, I know I certainly wouldn't be where I am today career-wise. And I wanted you have you on the podcast, Zach, to just kind of chat through um, how careers can relate to the unique opportunities afforded to those uh, who have been homeschooled, those who have been afforded a an alternative education. But before we get into that stuff, um, you know, I just briefly touched on on your um, illustrious background. Why don't you kind of introduce yourself to the listeners? Um, and, and kind of how you got involved in this, this education space, this homeschooling space. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm a partner at a venture capital fund called 1517 fund, uh, where we invest primarily in, uh, people who didn't go to school, dropped out of school, skipped school, or on leave from school, things like that. <clears throat> My colleagues at the fund that started the fund are the co-founders of the Teal Fellowship Program. So the Teal Fellowship, for those who aren't familiar, is kind of like an anti-Rhodes scholarship. The idea is that uh, Peter Teal, the co-founder of PayPal in 2010, set out to uh, give $100,000 grants to 20 young people a year under the age of 20 to work on uh, technology, culture, and, and similar uh, ideas that they wanted to work on. The idea largely being that if they could work on these things rather than, you know, the required classes that might be required at university uh, that we could significantly make, uh, we could make significant impacts in you know, science, culture, and other areas of uh, study and, and innovation, right? Uh, and I joined that team after previously working uh, on a company that uh, we kind of did like white collar apprenticeships is the way I like to describe it. So we would take young people often right out of high school uh, and place them at jobs that required college degrees without college degrees, right? 
the the idea, the genesis of that largely coming from, if you talk to a lot of business owners, they would tell you, you know, they might include a uh, college degree requirement in a job posting, not actually because there's any uh, human capital advancements that are made by, you know, the four-year on average five-year degree, uh, but rather it's just a way for them to filter through applications, right? And, and you could ask them, well, if I could send you really great uh, conscientious, competent young people uh, who didn't have degrees, would you consider hiring them? And, and the vast majority would would tell you yes. And on that team, my job was often doing two things. Um, one was finding the companies to hire these young people and convincing them to become one of our business partners. And then the other was uh, coaching a lot of the young people for getting them ready for the interviews they were going into, things like that. So, uh, and, and quite frankly, like you would set out and you'd think the harder part of that would be the business side, but it's actually the, uh, it's actually finding competent, conscientious young people who are thinking maturely and seriously about the beginning of their careers, right? Um, and, you know, I was not homeschooled. Uh, went to pretty traditional K-12 public school system. Um, and, you know, that that was fine for me. I, I did well in it. I can't, I can't say, like, it was horrible for me personally, but, yeah, you know, I understand that that's not necessarily uh, the common experience for a lot of people. And a lot of what was good for me there was... I had teachers that supported me personally and helped me take a, a, some time aside from my day to go work on those interests, right? Kind of similar to the macro vision of something like the Teal Fellowship. But you know, while I was working with these business partners and these young people, I noticed this weird trend that would emerge. And you know, the, my colleague who founded the company, he was homeschooled himself and he homeschooled his kids, so this wasn't really too surprising in the grand scheme of things. But I noticed that the young people that we admitted into the program who were homeschooled were way easier to train, way easier to place as these business partners. They had a higher rate of actually getting hired full time at the end of the program. Um, they just had a higher admission rate into the program. They're just so impressive. Uh, and the way I like to describe it to people is I was interested in what's wrong with uh, higher education. You know, it's it's not at all controversial now to tell people that higher education in this country is clearly broken. You know, 10 years ago, when I started all, uh, on all this, that was still kind of controversial among some people. Not at all controversial nowadays, you know, without even touching the debt question, without touching the ideological questions, the quality of the education. I mean, you can get into it. Like, is it just worth it? Right. right. And increasingly, the, the math does not add up for a lot of people. Right. Um, but the way I like to tell people is like, I was interested in higher education questions, um, but I kind of got radicalized on K-12 through looking at <laughs> higher ed. This is like, oh, in order to really fix higher ed, you need to fix K-12. And that sent me down the rabbit hole of a handful of uh, outstanding you know, people, some of whom were just people I knew personally and, and their experiences anecdotally through uh, privately schooling, homeschooling, public schooling, charter schooling, all these different things they were looking at, classical schooling. Um, and then also uh, reading researchers like Dr. Peter Gray in Boston, uh, author of Free to Learn, uh, reading uh, John Taylor Gatto's uh, personal essays, reading his books. I had the opportunity just through some of my own writing. Well, one of his publishers reached out to me and 
uh, offered me the opportunity to write the forward to one of the anniversary editions of Dumbing Us Down, like you mentioned. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get the chance to actually meet um, uh, Mr. Gatto myself before he passed away, but you know, he was uh, an inspiration uh, for me and a lot of the K-12 teachers I'd meet too. Like the funniest thing always was when I would meet a K-12 teacher who homeschooled their kids. <laughs> like, that was the canary in the coal mine where it's like, wait, right. you are choosing to homeschool your kids and you know exactly everything that's going on in these, in these schools. Like, you know, better and more intimately than anyone else. Um, so yeah, that, that's a little bit about my background. You know, I, I roundabout way ended up doing uh, investments in venture capital. Um, I see a lot of different companies and organizations that try to fix both K-12 and higher ed. And I'd say I can name on one hand the number of initiatives I, I think stand a chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, in part because I think really the way to fix this is, is not you know some grand massive scheme of a company. Uh, it's, it's homeschooling and the, the thousand different flavors and colors of what homeschooling ends up looking like when you give people that autonomy and that freedom and you trust both parents and communities to build up the institutions that they need locally uh, to train uh, and educate young people. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, we like to joke at 15, 17, we homeschool, we homeschool CEOs. Uh, <laughs> there's a thousand different ways to get to a place where you can build a successful company. Um, there's no one you know, scheme that you can like run. Wow. That's, that's a great story, Zach. Now I have to ask when you kind of first discovered that, man, you know, what is it with these, these home educated people, uh, when you first experienced that in the VC world and then subsequently dived into, you know, the work you've done in K-12 education, what do you think it is? Like, why is it that these homeschoolers just stand out in the workforce from your perspective? Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a bundle of like traits that go into whether or not somebody is competent in the workforce. Right. And I think a couple of those traits that immediately come to mind are uh, some interpersonal skills, right? Which is always a fun one to talk on because historically, you know, there's there's this uh, stereotype of a homeschooler being, you know, the weirdo who can't really talk to someone who's like, you know, wearing denim down to like the top of their right. or something like that, right? <laughs> Those people are out there and often, you know, a lot of them are great people and they have their reasons for being how they are. But like, in my experience, the homeschoolers I interacted with, you know, I was doing these interviews, I was doing this like very basic career coaching, um, getting people ready for job interviews, things like that. Uh, the homeschoolers I was interacting with were, uh, on average, leaps and bounds above the you know traditional uh, K twelve public schoolers that I talked to uh, on their ability to interact with people across you know various age groups, various status groups, things like that. And the reason for that, I think, is pretty straightforward. You know, if you are in a K-12 classroom format, you are stratified on two very inorganic criteria. You're stratified in the school by zip code, traditionally, or a cluster of zip codes. Mm. And you're stratified within the school by birthday. And that's just not how the real world works. The real world, especially uh, with the prevalence of more and more uh, travel options, more and more remote work options, you're not going to primarily be interacting with people in you know your clusters of codes. 
And you're not going to primarily be interacting with people who were born within, you know, 10 months plus or minus where, where you were born in. Uh, homeschoolers, on the other hand, have more opportunities to go out during the week, during the day, interact with adults, interact with people outside of, you know, maybe their immediate zip code. And so it's not surprising to me in that regard that you have a certain group of homeschoolers who were just way more competent at making eye contact with adults from a young age and talking to them. Right. Uh, you know, Peter Gray talks a lot about this in his study of the, the uh, Sudbury Valley School, right, which is kind of like an unschooling school. He's done uh, some interesting research on what these schools look like, and uh, they are not stratified by age. And one of the things you see is you see that younger children are much more capable of, you know, holding real conversations with older adults. Um, and across the age group, too, you see that older children will enforce social norms and teach them to younger children. That includes lower rates of bullying, uh, higher rates of, you know, general, you know, subjective well-being, like self-esteem, things like that. On the, like, everyone gets a trophy sense, but in the sense of, like, self-efficacy, the ability to go out into the world and carry certain things out. And that's the second, you know, trait I would say is... Uh, one of these basic traits that we, when we think of conscientiousness in the workplace, it's this element of self-efficacy of your uh, independence and your ability to figure problems out and go out and do them, right? And do make do the solutions to those problems. Uh, and, you know, like I said, I, in my experience, homeschooling tends to come in a thousand different colors and a thousand different flavors. Yeah. Uh, some tend to be much more, you know, rigid and command control oriented than others, but in general, it seems like there it does demand a higher level of independence, higher level of uh, actual critical uh, thinking and problem solving, which you just don't necessarily get in your average uh, K-12 uh, command control uh, classroom. Mm. Mm. And when you were interacting with these, these um, you know, future leaders, Zach, I mean, I'm assuming, um, I don't know if you can disclose, but I'm assuming these people are fairly young, probably are in their twenties. Uh, for, yeah. And in both, both professionally in the, the career accelerator, if we want to call it, that's the first part of my career, um, thus far the career accelerator. Yes. Uh, you know, we were talking about 18 to 23 year olds on average. That's kind of the range we're looking at. We get the occasional 25, 26 year old, uh, we'd get the occasional 16-year-old, which was always a fun conversation with businesses where the business would be like, well, you know, we have a beer keg in the office, so we're not really sure <laughs> under 21s. Um, turns out you can have an under 21 in the office if you have a beer keg. You just have to, you know, uh, you should be careful about how you uh, uh, set your company policies, right? <laughs> sure. There's nothing illegal about it is what I'm trying to say. Um you know, yeah, yeah. On average, I'd say the founders I work with now probably on average are twenty three to twenty five. Um, so I, you know, even now, yeah. you know, our thesis is not necessarily age oriented. I will interact with founders who we've got one portfolio company, for example, it's a husband wife team. They, neither of them have degrees, but they're probably in their sixties. Oh, right? sure. So, uh, not necessarily an age oriented thesis, more of a credential oriented thesis. Mm. That is fascinating. That is fascinating. Um, so, you know, what, what types of, of companies are these primarily? Are they, are they tech companies or, you know, is there kind of a, a scale of different industries that you work in? Do you specialize on one with uh, 15, 17? 
Yeah, I mean, the way that venture capital works is it's it's an asset class, right? And super early stage venture capital like that I work in looks a lot more like coaching and support than it looks like finance, right? Right. Uh, I'm probably the most financy person on the team. And even then, you know, when I was in university, I studied philosophy. So um, we're, we're much more about uh, a lot of these interpersonal qualitative traits and training than about, you know, backing into spreadsheets. Um, but at the end of the day, it is an asset class. So that does mean you, you raise money from investors, you deploy it, and you're trying to get a, a certain rate of return back for those investors over a certain period of time, right? And that necessitates certain kinds of investments across a portfolio in order to get those kinds of um, returns. You know, if anyone's interested in this, you know, I'd encourage them to read um, Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, talks a little bit about this. Uh, what we're talking about here is portfolio theory. In order to get the kinds of returns, because startups and small businesses are so hard, uh, in order to get the kinds of returns that you need over, say, a 10-year time frame, you need to be investing in companies that have the capacity to grow very, very quickly. Uh, and that does tend to be technology companies. Right. Now, by the nature of like what we do and who we talk to, I interact with a lot of founders who are not necessarily building technology companies. We might, we not, might not be able to invest in those companies. That doesn't mean that they're not good companies. Uh, it just means that venture capital is not the right way for them to you know, get uh, financing to grow. So most of the companies we invest in are some kind of technology company. Um, I'd say about a third are software companies, a third are what we could say hardware with the data play. So it might be like it's a hardware device that's collecting data and that data makes the device more accurate over time. Uh, and then a third might be what we call sci-fi or deep tech. So that might mean quantum computing, uh, nuclear batteries, space companies, things like that. You know, you get the occasional um, consumer good company kind of thrown in there as well. Um, but consumer goods, again, less of technology growth play, more of what we call brand growth play. You know, if, yeah. if you're a first mover in a space and you become very well recognized as being the brand for X in that space, it's hard to move against you. Mm. Now, Zach, You've done uh, quite a bit of career coaching. You know, your website that we'll include a link to in the description, zackslayback.com, has uh, some wonderful posts on there about all sorts of, um, you know, practical things related to a career and resources as well. I know you've written, um, you know, and designed programs around things such as building a personal brand, networking, you know, cold email outreach, all of these important skills that are so necessary, especially in the age of an internet excuse me, especially in the age of the internet. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm sure you're aware of is when I talk to young people and by young people, I would say if I had to put an age on it, I'd say probably 16 to 25 year olds. Oftentimes it extends beyond that. There's this real epidemic of uncertainty and um, I, I would say even a fail to act uh, in terms of seeking out apprenticeships, seeking out opportunities to learn a trade, to learn a business. Um, and therefore that results in, in many cases of, again, people not doing anything. I think, you know, adolescence is extended for a lot of folks as well, which is rather unfortunate, but it's why I'm glad I brought you on, you know, this is a, a big question, Zach, and it's a tough nut to crack, but like, what advice do you give to those recent graduates? Let's even say homeschool graduates that really don't know 
what they want to do. They're lost in their career, but you know, 18 is the magic number in our society. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's really unfortunate that universities in a certain regard have become so oriented or our perception around them has become so career oriented. I, I, I actually am sympathetic to people who say like, Oh, you know, university is about becoming a fuller, better person, not getting a job. And I'm sympathetic to that in a certain regard because it's like, yes, that's really what it should be about. Right. Uh, but if you query any group of college freshmen, the whole reason they're there is to get a job, right? So I, in an ideal world, you know, by the time somebody's 18 to 22, they get, a, they get a sense of, you know, what it means to build a meaningful life. Um, you know, I, I have my own sense of like what that means. Uh, but at the very least, what I encourage people to think about is, uh, if you don't have a sense for that, and, and I talked about this a little bit in, in uh, my book from McGraw-Hill from a few years ago, uh, you, can, you can use this introspection technique that was really developed by Nathaniel Brandon, um, but has been then further developed and, and uh, taken forward by a, a number of uh, thinkers since then of querying yourself about certain intuitions, right? And those intuitions can help uh, inform, you know, your next sets of action. So at the very least, uh, you know, one of the things that we are to just try to figure out what you really hate doing first. Yeah. Uh, when you're at the beginning of your career, it's way easier to take those risks. It's way, way easier to explore those things. And once you get a sense of what you really hate doing, then you can carve away trying to avoid those things, right? And hate doing in this sense doesn't mean uh, things that are hard and, and arduous, right? Often the things that are hard and arduous are the things that are worth doing. You might not enjoy it in the moment, right? But in the grand scheme, it's something that is meaningful. Hate doing in this sense means the things that are kind of like soul crushing, right? <laughs> certain people, it, it takes a certain kind of person to be a really good CPA, right? But for a lot of people... To, to if you ask them to do the things that a good CPA needs to do, they would just find it totally soul crushing. But if you're 18 and you don't know that, let's say you like numbers and you're looking at, you know, maybe I could be an actuary, maybe I could be a certain kind of engineer, uh, maybe I could be a mathematician, maybe I could be a CPA, you know, start working through the list of like, okay, well, what are some of the things you know you want to avoid? And then based on the list of things that uh, remain, try some of those things out. Right. And then practically, what, what I would say is, you know, whether you're in a higher education program or not, uh, take the time to reach out to professionals who do those things and ask them uh, what it's like to do those things and see if there are opportunities for you to engage in working with them. Whether that's a, if you're able to do an unpaid internship, I think those can be useful. Um, if you are not able to do an unpaid internship, you know, find the opportunity that you can add enough value, even if it's just pure grunt work. Uh, that would justify getting paid um, and then continue that process of introspection. Like, okay, well, of these like seven things I've tried and based on what I know about the career trajectory of this career going forward, you know, maybe these two careers are the ones where I would do the least number of things that are soul crushing. Right. Yes. And then what, what begins to emerge from that, right. Is this idea of, what you actually love doing. Because if you ask like an 18 year old, what do you love doing? They might give you 30 different things or they might say nothing, right? Yeah. Um, and that's normal. 
And if you ask a competent, intelligent 18 year old, you know, the world really is their oyster. And it's like, that's actually not helpful. <laughs> you could become, if you could become anything, that means you can become nothing. So you want to try to process of elimination. This is a, a classical, like quite literally classical technique for uh, identifying traits and characteristics of abstract concepts. Um, mm -hmm. You see this in, in some of the thinkers of antiquity asking, you know, you know, what makes something good? Is it because the gods like it or do the gods like it because it is good, right? Um, and then you can kind of ask, well, okay, that's one question. But then within that question, you ask, well, what are the things we know that are bad, right? And why are those things bad? And then this kind of evolves in, say, early Christian history in the church fathers, the desert fathers, uh, you know, in, in Catholic thought, it goes off. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas develops this to a certain extent. St. Augustine before him in Orthodox thought goes off in another direction similar of asking, you know, well, what, what is the divine, right? Well, we want to start by saying, like, what is the divine not? This is a process called via negativa. So through the negative, right? Through what we know God is not, we get a better sense of, like, what are the traits of the divine, um, like in Eastern Orthodox thought, we you can end up at a conclusion relatively quickly, like theosis becoming like the divine is a process of elimination oftentimes, right? So yeah. you can apply the similar kind of concept to one's own, you know, professional trajectory. So what you're saying, Zach, is it's it's perfectly normal for a student listening to this podcast to uh, do like 10 different things, let's say, while they're in high school and it will take a process to end up at, at meaningful work in most cases. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would, like I said, when you're early on, you don't have, I, I assume, you know, maybe, maybe you do have a family. Wonderful. Um, but I assume, you know, most people who are like coming out of high school probably don't. Right. Uh, it's going to be a lot easier to take these kinds of risks because these are jobs that probably pay a little bit less. Uh, you don't have, student loans, you don't have a mortgage, you don't have all these other kinds of things that you have commitments to try lots of things. Right. And then if you're more entrepreneurial, look for problems, right? Like I can tell stories about some of the founders that we've worked with and how they ended up building, uh, stumbling into the companies that they've built. And some of those companies do, you know, tens of millions of dollars in revenue. Uh, and if you're less entrepreneurial, that's fine. Uh, look for the things that, you know, you don't enjoy in work and try to eliminate those. Right. Right. Zach, what do you think are the um, like unique opportunities available to homeschoolers when it comes to, you know, exploring careers? Uh, I mean, while they're in high school, it's anything that would be difficult to do outside of uh, outside of like a nine to five context. Right. That's true. Right. <laughs> it's like, Shadowing a lot. I mean, if you're in high school right now or coming into high school, maybe you can't do full blown apprenticeships with people. You know, there are laws around those things, and some, sometimes people just really aren't comfortable having you know like a 15 or 16 year old in their office doing actual work. But a lot of people are really comfortable with shadowing, um, and that's hard to do if you're you know sitting in a classroom from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. every day. Uh, so I think. You can get you can get a, a real head start on these like what do I hate questions and eliminating them by just you know look at the careers that you find interesting, reach out to those people and ask them if you can shadow them for a week, right? Yeah, uh, I think that goes a really really long way. 
I think anything that would require you or that you get a big bump um, in seriousness or how seriously people take you from having a portfolio, using the time that you have to build out that portfolio, whether that's a, uh, say a, a creative pursuit. So let's say writing or uh, graphic design or uh, software engineering, right? Or if it's a trade, so that could be a portfolio of carpentry work or woodworking work or um, stone working, any of these kinds of things like that. Use the time to build that up, right? Uh, I've seen plenty of uh, homeschoolers who by the time they're 18, 19 years old have a significantly uh, more advanced portfolio than a 23 or 24 year old uh, with whom they're trying to compete for a job. Right. Wow. That is encouraging. Now, Zach, just switching switching gears a little bit. I know you're not a homeschool graduate yourself, but I'd love to hear the story of your own career because I always think uh, we can learn from from one another here on the podcast. So, you know, you were 18 once upon a time. Um, how did you begin your career journey? Yeah, you know, uh, kind of somewhat ironically enough, I thought I was going to be a professor. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, I, you know, I went to university with the expectation that I would study uh, the university I went to had a degree program, uh, which was, I think was the only one in the States at the time that actually had a major in this, in philosophy, politics, and economics. That's what I wanted to study. Mm. Turns out it's not particularly interesting to essentially have a degree that's a triple minor. Um, so I got attracted <laughs> a little bit more over into the philosophy direction. Had the opportunity to study um, fairly seriously with a philosopher at the university I was studying at in moral psychology uh, and, you know, she, right around the same time that she actually got hired away by another university, um, I had the opportunity to, uh, start on, you know, the founding team on the ground, on the ground floor with the, the company I mentioned earlier that does, um, this kind of like career accelerator kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. So I really just, I, I was kind of at this point really just hungry to do practical, serious work. Right. So I reached out to my friend who was starting that company and I said, Hey, just give me whatever you need done at this time. I'll sit in the library uh, late at night on weeknights and I'll work on that once I'm done, you know, doing my reading for the, the philosophy classes I'm in. Um, and he needed that. And over time, you know, he gave me a little bit of ownership in the company and then brought me on full time and gave me more ownership like really onto the founding team with him and, you know, one other person. Uh, and at some point we raised a little bit of money and the idea was that we would go out and hire uh, an experienced business development person to bring their whole portfolio of clients and businesses in uh, for us to place young people at, right? Because again, we were trying to take young people, train them up over a relatively short period of time and place them at these companies that could hire them. Wow. Uh, and at the end of the, the program, the, the companies would hire them full time. Um, this was not super common at the time. Now, in the last decade, there have been more and more companies that do things like this, right? Yeah. Like the, the most prominent example is Bloom Tech. They do this for software engineering. It used to be called Lambda School. Um, very somewhat similar kind of thing, right? Um, the only real difference is that it was more for engineering and the Lambda slash Bloom Tech uses something called income share agreement, and we didn't. Uh, but at the time, we were one of the only companies doing this. Um, so it was really, really hard to find someone who like both understood what we were doing and had the portfolio to plug us into a bunch of companies. So I remember one day, I just 
looked at the CEO who you know, I've been working with. It was him and me and like one other person at this point. Um, I told him, I was like, well, why don't you just hire me for this job? <laughs> yeah. like, I'll go around. I'll call these businesses up. I'll email them. You'll do some introductions for me. We'll network our way around and we'll get a, a portfolio of companies. Uh, and he did. Um, he gave me that opportunity. And I did that for a couple of years. Um, and then after I left that company, well, through working with that, you know, we got plugged into the Teal Fellowship world because we were both doing something related to uh, taking on the higher education establishment, right? Like Teal Fellows are more like the, you know, if we think of like competence or, you know, let's just say competence is like a bell curve. Uh, we Teal Fellows are like the, the very, very end of the bell curve. They tend to be, you, know, you read these stories about people like Laura Deming, Boss or Vitalik Buterin. And, you know, like Laura Deming was, uh, she's this longevity researcher that was an early Teal Fellow and just very clearly, very, very, very outlier brilliant, right? And we weren't quite working with like that level of person. We were looking for people who were like competent, above average competent, above average ambitious, but right. you know, not necessarily like I want to invent uh, Ethereum, right? Uh, like Vitalik Buterin. Um, but we got tied into the teal world. So after I left this company, um, similar kind of thing. I, and this is why I'm so gung-ho on like cold email outreach. Mm. You know, I hate the term networking. I hate the term uh, personal brand, but like when I was working on the book on personal branding, I tried so hard to invent a new phrase and it just became so much jargon. (laughs) It was just like, look, I'll just say, I hate the phrase personal brand. I hate what it's come to mean, but it really just means your reputation. Right. right. So you, you rely on your reputation in order for people to say like, okay, I'll give this person a little bit of a chance to prove themselves. And, mm-hmm. you know, kind of rinse, wash, repeat for me um, over time, the, the team, you know, the, the founders, the GPs, general partners at 1517 gave me more and more opportunity to get engaged in what we were doing uh, from starting on kind of the marketing side, because that's where I built up my, my chops and, the ability to just produce a lot of content. Like yes. if you are if you are prolific at whatever kind of medium you are on, that is a very good way to get your foot in the door with a lot of different organizations. Um, so for me, that was writing, right? I don't know what the alpha for that is going to look like in like the the GPT three, GPT four world. Um, you know, once once these AI tools can actually pass a Turing test. Uh, to, at least for the average person, maybe the the alpha from being prolific at writing is significantly lower. Uh, but for me, that was that. I know people for others, it's like TikTok or podcasting or any number of things, right? Mm-hmm. That allowed me to get my foot in the door. Um, then I was given more opportunity to support our portfolio companies on the talent side because that's where I've been working for you know several years before joining the team here. Yeah. And again, just kind of worked my way uh, more and more trust going deeper and getting the chance then to do investments. And that's kind of where I've ended up now. That is fascinating. That is fascinating. Um, you know, talk a little bit about your, I, as you said, Zach, you've, you've written a whole book on it, but talk a little bit about personal branding for lack of a, a better word. And, yeah. um, you know, I think, I think when you're young, you don't have much of a personal brand when you start out. Um, sure. but, but like you said, I mean, especially when you're young, if you get started, I got started at 16. Let's say you get started at 18. By the time you're 23, um, I mean, if you're a really competent, ambitious person, you can build a resume that's more impressive 
um, and comparable to that of even a 30 year old competitor. So, you know, in that realm, kind of what advice would you give to those starting out? Sure. Uh, like, like we said, you know, personal brand has a lot of different connotations. Unfortunately, right around the time I was finishing the book on this topic, which the book is more about, you know, how do you, uh, develop a reputation that helps you, um, you know, land those career opportunities that really allow you to do the things that you, you are meant to do that are valuable. Right. Um, Right around that same time, unfortunately, personal branding started to mean like people who are really active on Twitter <laughs> and like right. selling courses, selling courses on like how to tweet. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's not really what I mean. Uh, you know, there are some subset of people for whom that is actually a valuable skill, but it's not what uh, for the vast majority of people who are trying to learn this topic. That's not what they're meant to do. Um, it is a way of like distilling your reputation down. So like one way you can think about it is like, if if there is something you really are good at, you want that when people are thinking about who do I need to talk to on this topic, they say, oh, you should talk to Noah. That is your personal brand, right? If people are sitting there brainstorming, um, who should I talk to on, you know, home, who, who are really good people who know lots of things about homeschooling? Oh, well, talk to Noah. He's, he's the homeschooling guy, right? right? Or, oh, you need... You need uh, to ask for fundraising advice and you're like a non-traditional kind of founder. Oh, you should talk to Zach. Zach deals with a lot of founders that way. That's an example of personal brand, right? Got it. And the way you kind of build that out is by this phrase that uh, a lot of people have adopted in the last couple of years. One big way of of proving it out is by learning out loud, right? Or working out loud. Yeah. As you are doing more and more things at work, at your job, or whatever you're working on, either uh, journaling about that through a, a blog or a podcast. You know, people do this on TikTok now. This is what a lot of these like work TikToks really are about at the end of the day. Um, Instagram, other platforms like that. Yeah. Uh, or just building that portfolio for work. So like, let's say you're 16 and you uh, have some software engineering capabilities uh say you're like pretty good at python or something build build out of you know like make sure that you're committing to your github (laughs) right (laughs) like that is just one simple way of doing this and then just having some kind of place that you can then point to as evidence like no i've been working on this since i was 16 years old you know you could be 19 you can credibly claim you have three years of work experience yeah you know most people aren't able to claim that until they're 24 25 years old if that um that's that's how i think about it you know and then then there's this aspect of like okay well i've got that you know journal i've got that blog i've got that github whatever it is how do i make sure the right people know about it and like okay well that's where networking comes in that's where reaching out to people comes into comes into play yeah, yeah, you know, I I hate networking is another one of these phrases I hate the phrase for because the idea that comes to people's minds is like you know this kind of sleazy like life insurance salesman that you meet <laughs> at a at, at like an event, right? Like someone who's trying to sell you whole life insurance when you're like 19. That's like, well, right. I'm 19. Why do I need whole life insurance? Why does anyone need whole life insurance? Right? Um, that's not what I'm talking about when I say networking. I mean uh meeting the right people, not the most people, right? Mm-hmm. Very targeted. So the same thing with personal brand. It's that the right people know about you and your skills, not that the most people do. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. No, that's good. Um, you know, one, one, one question, perhaps uh, the last question I'll ask you, Zach, because I know we're coming up on time today is, um, I don't know how, you know, I don't have any data as to how consistent this issue is, but it's certainly something I've run into. One of the cool things about homeschoolers is that they're often so, um, I mean, they're so their interests usually span across a wide spectrum of things. So when you talk about personal branding, um, I mean, for you, for example, I mean, you could be seen as the venture capital guy. You could be seen as the career guy. You could be seen as the, the dumbing us down guy, you know, like the alternative education guy. When you have multiple sort of um, like vernaculars that you have competencies in, how do you make a personal brand out of that? Or is it, you know, or multiple personal brands? I think you can have multiple. Um, it's kind of hard to do like from the get-go. I wouldn't recommend doing it at like 18 because then, you right. know, yeah, you, you, you still really don't know what you like and like what you hate. So I would yeah. try to, at 18, the main thing I would be focusing on would be like, I am competent. Like I get stuff done, right? Right. And like maybe, right. maybe I'm competent in a couple of specific verticals that I've got a better sense of. But like, if you're just competent, you get stuff done, you show up, um, you know, you can exude some level of verbal or quantitative intelligence that goes a really long way. Right. Um, you know, as you advance more and more, yes, the, the brand needs to be more and more, I don't want to say colorful, but, um, differentiated, right. If your brand at like 35 or 40 is just incompetent. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, it's, it's hard to hire even competent people, even at that age, but yeah. Uh, you know, you're going to be competing in many cases against like 18 year old we're talking about. That's what we, that's what we don't want. Right. Um, so, you know, as one matures and advances through different stages of career and skills and things like that, you can kind of have different verticals. Um, I've done that and I think it works relatively well. Um, you know, I, when, when you emailed me, for example, I had to, you know, I had to read a couple lines in the email and figure out like, okay, which personal brand is this, is this, this guy right. you know, come to me through, right? Right. You know, I've got a podcast interview in a week or so where I'm on a podcast where we're talking pure venture capital stuff, right? Got it. Um, you know, I do a, a reading group on uh, like Catholic social teaching, right? And like that's a different vertical where, you know, you, you can just kind of build these things out. Um, you know, the, the brass tacks of what that looks like, you know, quite frankly, I haven't done the best job of this on my own personal site. Uh, the personal site is very uh, firmly in the, the career kind of vertical right now. Um, but, you know, over time, if you decide to retire a personal brand, you can always archive old posts, right? Um, I've right. seen people do that rather well. You can also, like, something I've thought about is I primarily write over my sub stack now rather than on my personal site. Yeah, because I just don't like uh, WordPress. Um, and I thought like one thing I can do there is I can have different categories, right? So I could have, you know, career, I can have uh, venture and startups, I can have education, um, I have like religion, all these different categories that one can write in. Yeah. Yeah, brass tacks, one of the nice things about Substack is you can actually have different email lists for each of those categories if you want. Yeah. Right on. Well, Zach, that was uh, that, I'm so glad you asked that because I was wondering uh, the answer to that question myself as a as a homeschool graduate. Um, Zach Slayback, I am sorry to uh, cut our time short. I could talk to you for so much longer, but I know we're coming up on time. So 
Thank you for coming on the podcast. I employ, I implore listeners to check out your work, zackslayback.com. We'll link uh, 1517 Fund and some of the other things you've done, books you've written in the description of this episode. But Zach, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Homeschool Enthusiast. Subscribe for free wherever you listen to podcasts. Twice a week, we bring you a message of hope and freedom, remembering that every student has unlimited God-given potential and the best learning happens outside of classrooms.